Today's scripture is selected from Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven. Um, God prepared it as a wait, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And um, and I heard a loud voice from from the throne saying, "Behold, the dwelling place of God." is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain um, any more, for the former things have passed away. And I saw, a new, and I saw no temple in, in the city, for it, for its temple is the Lord. God is the Lord, God, the God Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it. Um, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By the light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on, the, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, which, which with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for, were for healing up, was for the healing of all nations. No longer will there will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship him, and and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will they will need no light or a lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. All right, thanks Luke. He read just now a couple of excerpts from the last two chapters of Revelation. That's Revelation chapters 21 and 22, which will be our main text for today, at least portions of that. Over the past few weeks, as Matt said a few minutes ago, we've been tracing the story of the kingdom of God across the entire span of the scriptures. Um, we saw last week that the Gospel of Matthew, which opens the New Testament, tells us that the Scripture's repeated promise of a coming king was fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. He was the Christ, the one who'd been anointed by God, not only to restore the nation of Israel, but also to reign as the world's true king, and whose rule would ultimately bless all the nations of the earth as God had promised to Abraham. That's the heart on our biblical timeline. The heart isn't, by the way, just the love of God, just a concept. It's the love of God concretely manifested in what he said to Abraham, which then flows into the nation of Israel and ultimately Jesus. And Jesus is that descendant, that Israelite descendant of Abraham who would indeed bless all the nations of the earth. But the, the arrival of Jesus wasn't the end of the Bible's kingdom story. So we weren't quite finished 
last week. That wasn't the, you know, the final chapter, that was the penultimate, the next to the last chapter of the story, if you will. Um, in fact, Jesus himself, in a prominent sermon, told his hearers to pray that the kingdom of heaven would come still. Jesus says that. He's the king, but he says pray that it will come. So even though Jesus had come, God's kingdom was yet in the distance, at least in some sense. And during the 40 days between Jesus' uh, resurrection and his ascension back to heaven, what was he doing? Well, we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, that uh, he was for 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. So he, He's still talking about the kingdom of God. He talked about it early and he talked about it often and apparently for 40 days. That's what Luke tells us, summing up what he was talking about. Can you imagine him on, day, on like day 30? Okay, okay, okay. Nope, 40 days worth of kingdom of God. So obviously this was something yet to, to be talked about even though Jesus the King had indeed arrived. He had come on earth. And this raised questions for his disciples because they could look around them and see the pagan kingdom of Rome. Uh, it was clearly thriving, right? It, it, it wasn't gone. It appeared to, in fact, run the world day to day. They were in charge. They were in control. But these disciples had also been reared on prophecies in their scriptures of a messianic king who would restore the kingdom of Israel. And so that gives rise to their question just a few verses later in Acts 1. They ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? File that away in your brain for later in our sermon today. That's a question. Like, Rome's here, they're ruling, and yet there's these passages that tell us this messianic king is going to restore Israel and that kingdom. So what gives? And there were other questions as well. Questions about the nature of this future kingdom. What will it be like? And what will our lives be like there? In Matthew 19, Jesus is talking about who will and won't make it into the kingdom of heaven and what has to be given up and how God makes what seems impossible possible. And Peter then says in Matthew 19, 27, in reply to Jesus, see, the disciples, he says, have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? All right. And Jesus answers them. And in his answer to them, he says something very interesting and I would say essential. It's an essential key to understanding our eternal destiny, the eternal destiny of any disciple. And what he talks about is the consummated kingdom of the future. When at last, as he says, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. So if you want to know the trajectory, ultimately, of this kingdom story throughout the span of the Bible, this is a key to understanding it. Jesus says, truly I say to you, in the new world, in the new world, your version may say, in the regeneration, something like that, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, when I'm actually installed on the throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, He says to the disciples, to the twelve, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, all the sacrifices that people have made to follow Me, they will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I want you to notice, though, that he says this is going to happen. This is going to be the case in, in, in a new realm, a new order called the new world. Jesus' words, all right? Those are his words. 
This is an interesting word too. Palingenesia is, is two words. This is the Greek word behind new world or you may have regeneration. It's the word palin and genesis. And I think we would go, well, that's Genesis. Yeah, it's the Greek word for beginnings, generation, right? The source of something. Palin, the word added to it in this compound noun, is the, the word for again or anew. And so this is, I, I don't want to make too much of the etymology of a word because that doesn't always work out perfectly, but it is interesting that this word kind of means new genesis. A new genesis, a regeneration of the world. And this points us to the conclusion of the Bible's kingdom narrative. The part we're going to talk about today, the kingdom consummated or the kingdom realized, finally attained in its ultimate sense. And this means we need to look at, because this picture of this consummated kingdom is found in the last two chapters of the last book of the biblical canon, and that is Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And what we see when we examine uh, that section of Scripture, this final vision of the Apostle John given to him by the Lord himself, what we see there is a vision of the kingdom realized. This is an entirely renewed world, entirely ruled by God. Both of those are essential. It's entirely new, entirely renewed rather, and it's entirely, without rival, ruled over by God and the Lamb. That's what we read over and over in Revelation. Remember, the, the disciples in Revelation, though they're being persecuted and even killed, it is those who overcome, not meaning fight sword to sword, but are killed for the Lamb. They're willing to go to death like He went to the death on the cross. They're the ones who will overcome. Some versions say conquer, but it's a weird kind of conquering, the kind Jesus did, conquering by being conquered, willingly. Those are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes, and who observe the throne, the true throne of the world, God and His Lamb ruling. That's the world to which disciples of Jesus are headed. Let's make some comments about that from Revelation 21 and 22. We'll go elsewhere, but that's the basis of our text today. As we conclude this kingdom story and look at a picture in Revelation 21 and 22 of the kingdom realized. First of all, it is described as a paradise like the garden of God. A paradise like the garden of God. The Garden of Eden, a few times in the, the Scriptures, is referred to as the Garden of God. And that's where I'm getting this phrase. For instance, I'll just give you one example and we'll move on. In Ezekiel 28, 13 and a couple other places in Ezekiel, we read that Eden is referred to as the Garden of God. This text says, you were in Eden, the Garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Just this paradise that you had. We read about it in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, remember. And we're going to see that this new world that Jesus referred to is described in terms of a kind of a new paradise. It is very like Eden. I'm not saying it's just Eden again, but it's described in those kinds of terms. And this is presented as the destiny in Revelation of all who follow the Lamb, who respect the rule of God and His Lamb on the throne, and by virtue of following Him, overcome all the obstacles of, of the worldly kingdom, which in, in Revelation is presented as Babylon. And Babylon kind of stands for the pagan nemesis of the true king that's always been there since the beginning of the Bible. And you can just go through it all. Egypt, Sodom, 
you know, Edom, Assyria, the big ones too, you know, uh, like Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, uh, the, the, the empires, David's talking about the intertestamental period, the, the uh, Greek and Macedonian empire which breaks down into the Seleucids and Ptolemies and then the Rome, rise of Rome. All, there's always been that. There's never been a time uh, after you know, Genesis 11 with the, the builders of Babel, the city and tower of Babel, that you don't have a Babylon. It was a literal place and kingdom, but it's also a type. We still have, have them today. No, Christians don't talk about that much in our neck of the woods. I don't know why. The only people I know who talk about that a lot, like the sort of powers that be being pagan and against the way of the cross, is Rastafarianism. If you, if, you, if you go very deep on Bob Marley in your playlist, Beyond, Don't Worry, you know, Beyond Three Birds, he talks about Babylon all the time. We're trotting through Babylon. Now, it's a very strange theology, I'll grant that. Kind of mixes Bible stuff with a lot of other things. But he gets that idea, you know, very much that Babel, Babel and Babylon are the nemesis. That's the false kingdom that, that seems to be in charge. But the followers of the Lamb know there is an alternate reality that's more real and that one day will be manifested in this new world which presented, is presented as even. So, Eden. So we believers are headed to life in a realm described as a new paradise. So what John wrote to the seven churches of Asia applies to all followers of the Lamb. I don't know if you remember this verse from a few weeks ago in the study on the seven churches of Asia. Revelation 2.7, I think here he's addressing the church at Ephesus, if memory serves. And he says, the one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Where does that come from? Anyone? Genesis 1 and 2, right? This is, this is uh, the, the account of creation. He's, I'm not making this up. This is his illusion. He's going to describe eternity this way. All right? And when we look at Revelation 21 and 22, at the very end of uh, the, the book of Revelation, but also of the Bible story, it alludes repeatedly to Genesis 1 through 3's account of this Edenic creation. Mainly, just the opening uh, statement of the vision, of this final vision, is what frames the whole thing in these kind of terms. John says, Then I saw, this is how he introduces the final vision in Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. If you want to know in, the Bible, in Bible terms about the first heaven and the first earth, where do you go? Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning God created, in the beginning, which is another thing, the first heaven and earth. But here he's saying, I saw a new, just like Genesis, the first heaven and earth, or in some way like that, I saw a new version of that. A renewed. It's heaven and earth again, anew. Right? So he's, he's telling us to read this in terms that, 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 that evoke and allude to the original creation. That would be enough to make this point we're making. But also we read things like the tree of life again and the river of life. Remember Genesis has this big deal about the river that flows out of the garden and waters all the trees and so on. Here we read in Revelation 22 that the angel showed John the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river the tree of life. These are all references to uh, Genesis and to uh, the garden of Eden. And just as Adam and Eve were to reign with God over 
the original creation, as Genesis 1, 27 and 28 tell us. So we read in Revelation 22, verse 5, Night will be no more, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they, that is, the human redeemed people populating the earth, the new heavens, new earth with God, they will reign, have dominion, have rule over that creation, just like Adam and Eve, the primordial human pair, were to reign over with God over the original creation. So we got all these references that force us to go back, uh, if, we're, if we're sensitive readers at all, <laughs> unless we've got some conclusion already, and we just say, oh, that's, that's figurative, that's figurative, that's figurative, and just, sometimes that's figurative as a way to dismiss language that doesn't fit our model, right? Yeah, there's figurative language in the Bible, lots of it. I don't know how literal and figurative this is. We've at least got to let the Bible idioms and phrases and terms frame the way we think about it. We can't just go, I've got a conclusion already that I grew up with, therefore, that's all out because it doesn't fit. All right? That's really not following the Lamb whether, whithersoever He goes because He is the Word incarnate, and this is His Word. So we've got to be sensitive and, and receptive to this language. I don't know why we wouldn't be. Are, I'm interested in a paradise that's like Eden. Anybody have a problem with that? Right? I'm so thankful Harry was baptized because he's one more soul. You know, one more human person that the Lord made and has been redeemed. And we, those of us who have been redeemed in the blood of Christ, this is where we're headed according to Revelation, according to the Bible, the whole Bible story. It's the consummation of the kingdom story. And this is a world shot through with the very presence of God. And that's our second observation about this new world that Jesus tells the disciples about. Everywhere God is present. He's not in some special place just like you know, in church, like we sometimes think, even though that's, I think, theologically off, but we sometimes think that he's just here only. He's not outside the, 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 the walls. I can do whatever I want outside the walls in my own house or at work or whatever. You've got to get it right at church. No, no, no. God's everywhere. He's everywhere in the new heavens, new earth. And there was some sense uh, in which in... Um, well, let me say this. Th this idea of the presence of God is presented several ways. Uh, in, in just in this last two chapters in the book of Revelation, there's several biblical themes or mo motifs that are picked up to make this point that He is now everywhere. And the first of those is the, the Bible's idea of a tabernacle or temple. Remember that the tabernacle was a, a, a portable tent, a very elaborate tent that had in, in the innermost part of it the most holy place. And this is where God was present with Israel on the Day of Atonement. Certain sacrifices had to be made and so on for their sins so that he could come into, into the presence there and his, uh, his glory could descend and so on. And then later that's replaced with a permanent structure, the temple that David showed you, which had you know, several iterations, the last of which was Herod's you know, magnified and beautified temple during the uh, days of the Roman Empire. But this theme of God's presence being in a tabernacle or temple is, is consummated. It's concluded and wrapped up and given its ultimate expression in the description of this new world in Revelation 21 and 22. So in Revelation 21, 3, in one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, John says this, after saying, I saw the new heavens and new earth, he says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. 
The Greek word translated dwelling place is the word for tabernacle. Okay? Skene. It's the word for tent or tabernacle. So this, another way to translate this is behold the tabernacle of God. There's a version or two I think that says that. An English version or two. So this is, this is bringing all those threads in the Bible about God being in the tabernacle and the temple and wrapping them up together and saying, that is now fulfilled. It's fleshed out in its fullest sense. And what does it look like? It doesn't look like a building anymore or a tent or a spatial location because we're going to read that in the new creation, God is present everywhere. So no temple is needed. There's no place where He isn't. The temple is the Lord Himself and the Lamb everywhere you could possibly go. So in Revelation 21, 2, he says, And I saw no temple in the city. For That should be 22, 2. For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You don't need a temple. God's everywhere. And so temple is just the reality. The presence of God, temple, tabernacle, is just how it is. Right? Then also, there is a theme in the Bible about the city. In the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah or the Pentateuch or the Law, remember that the Israelites are coming into the Promised Land uh, in part of that narrative. And, and as they're coming into the Promised Land, the land promised to the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land of Canaan, they were told to identify the, quote, city where the Lord would put His name. Do you remember that? It's repeated over and over and over. You're going to go to the city where Yahweh will put His name, which turns out to be the city of Jerusalem. But earlier in the Bible narrative, the builders of a place called Babel had built their own city. A city with a tower that was somewhat famous, or notorious is a better way to put it. And it was a tower, a city tower that was supposed to reach the heavens. What they are essentially trying to do is to join earth to heaven. To cause heaven and earth to be one, right? To bring them together. But this was through a project on their part of human origin. A kind of self-deification project. In Genesis 11:4, we read that they were saying to themselves, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. How can we reach heaven? How can we make heaven and, and earth come together, be one? Well, in Revelation 21 and 22, in the vision of the new heavens and new earth, guess what? There is a city at its center. A city is, is the hub of the whole new heavens and new earth. So this biblical theme of city, you know, the Bible is really a tale of two cities. The city of God and the city of man as Augustine would, would later write. And this city at the center of the new heavens and new earth, the city that's the center of, of the new creation, is called the New Jerusalem. And so we read in Revelation 21 right out of the gate, I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned, for her husband. This is a, it's, as you read on in Revelation 21 and 22, it's an interesting city because it's kind of a garden city. You get images of the garden mixed with images of a city, but it is called the New Jerusalem. It is God's holy city. It is the ideal city for which, or to which, uh, I guess for which, all humans really long, whether they appreciate it or not. We all want earth and heaven to meet, don't we? We all want problems to go away and, and there to be plenty 
and to be joy and beauty and security. We want all the things that the, the mingling of heaven and earth would bring. But I want you to know, and, and you get that here in this picture in Revelation 21. That, but notice this. This is sort of the inversion of, uh, of the Tower of Babel in that city. We do get the joining of heaven and earth. We do get the, the, the linking of the divine and the human. But it is not launched from earth as was the Babel project. It is launched from heaven and it comes down. The new Jerusalem, God's ideal city, is a gift from heaven. It's coming down. Just as the, 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 the veil separating the holy place and the most holy place was rent, giving full access for humanity because sin had been taken away by the crucifixion of Jesus. When he's dying on the cross, it is torn, but it's torn from the top down. So the new Jerusalem descends from the top. And we will never build heaven on earth ourselves. That's what the Tower of Babel, this is an elemental passage. It's in Genesis. It's in Genesis 1 through 11, 1 through 12. That to me sets the whole scene for the whole, not only the Bible, but for our existence. And God says, I'm sending you this city which joins heaven and earth in a sense, but it's going to come down out of heaven for God. All right. Now I want to do a little sidebar here. Okay, real quick. It's in my notes, don't worry. I know I get in trouble. That, that's where your extra eight, nine minutes come from when I just start. I've been preaching so long, there's just so many things in my head, they just come out. Um, today I'm really trying to stay in my notes, but this is in them. Um, all that wasn't, though, those last two sentences. Okay. Um, so, it's important to note th that in the Bible's language, we talk about being people of the book and saying, hey, we need to get back to the Bible. No creeds but the Bible. All right, here we go. Put our money where our mouth is. In the Bible's language, the final destination of God's people isn't described here as going up to heaven, is it? Especially not an immaterial heaven, like some celestial region where nothing's physical anymore. That's not in this. Final vision of the kingdom of God and eternity, Revelation 21 and 22. Instead, what do we have? If we just take the language seriously, we have a new earth. The whole thing starts that way. Behold, I saw a new heaven, a new earth, and the people of God who comprise the new Jerusalem, later becomes clear that their people, that's what the new Jerusalem is, are coming down from heaven to earth. Look at the language. I saw the, the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as God's bride, and it comes down to earth. Okay? And so, there's this whole new creation, and God's people, His community of His followers, the new Jerusalem, comes down to live, to reign forever on the new earth. Now, I realize that myself included, did not grow up with that idea. You die... You lose the horrible body and all things physical, and you become this almost disembodied spirit. This is the way I grew up, anyway, hearing. And you, you, you're just in heaven. You really don't know what that is. It's sort of immaterial and spiritual and clouds, maybe, and harps, maybe. But you don't really know. You just know it's not hell. That's what I cared about as an 18-year-old. It's not hell. <laughs> it didn't super motivate me, but not being hell motivated me. It didn't sound incredibly fun, if I'm being honest. You know, I like singing, but forever? Come on, some of you with me on this? I've read that people are, many people. I, where did we get that? 
Yes, there's a sense in which we go to heaven. I'm, I don't argue with anybody who says so-and-so's with the Lord. When we, leave, when we die, we are with the Lord. And all the good things that comes with that. But is that the final picture? This is really the final picture of God's people coming back down to a repristinated earth. It's pristine again. I think I made up a word, but so what? It's, it's like perfect again. Even better. It's going forward from that. And I want to tell you, this was the view of numerous ancient Christians. All right, way back after the first century, so like the second century, third century, what did they believe they thought the Bible taught? Well, you could go through and look at like uh, people like uh, Justin Martyr. Y'all have heard of some of these people maybe. Irenaeus in southern France, uh, Hippolytus in Rome, Origen, Celsius. A lot of these people, you can read what they thought. They believed that, they were, that eternity was, they would have a resurrected body and it would be fit for a resurrected whole creation and they would live forever in the New Jerusalem on a renewed earth because they got it out of Revelation. Somebody says, well, they, they were off on lots of stuff. Okay, this won't mean anything to many of you, but for those of you who grew up in Churches of Christ or Christian churches or something like that, the American Restoration Movement, which I did, which I think has a lot to offer the world because it's a very, very much a back to the Bible and the Bible alone approach. Here's what Alexander Campbell, ever heard of him? Here's what he wrote in 1839. And so did many of his peers thought these same things in the 1800s. The Bible begins with the generations of the heavens and the earth. But the Christian revelation ends with the regenerations or new creation of the heavens and earth. This is the ancient promise of God confirmed to us by the Christian apostles. The bodies of the saints will be as homogenous with the new earth and heavens as their present bodies are with the present heavens. In other words, the kind of body we have will be like the substance of the world we live in. It fits. The best description, last paragraph here, we can give of this regeneration is in the words of one who had a vision of it on the island of Patmos. That is John, of course, the book of Revelation. He describes it as far as it is connected with the new Jerusalem, which is to stand upon the new earth under the canopy of the new heaven. If so many people thought that forever and thought it in our own faith tradition, some of you aren't from that faith tradition, that's fine. We're just trying to follow Jesus, that's not important. But some of us, that probably matters a lot too. And I wanted to, you know, sort of clear the air a little bit here. This is some radical new thing that, you, that the Jehovah's Witnesses made up or premillennialists made up. Way predates all that. Where did that go? The best idea from what I've read of historians of, of, of the Restoration Movement is that the advent of the rise of premillennialism around World War II and became pervasive. It wasn't before that. World War I kind of did a dent, put a dent in some of the more optimistic theories about end times, and premillennialism is much more pessimistic about human culture and society and its abilities. But it kind of took off and had all kinds of errors in it, and so there was an overcorrection uh, much of it led by people like Foy Wallace, who tried to root out anything about the, the eternity of, of, of uh, God's people having anything to do with physicality or the earth. One extreme begets another extreme. You run past the pages of the Bible so you don't do an error. Ever heard of that? We don't get our theology from reaction. We get it from the pages of Scripture. All right, that's all we're going to say about that. Oh, one more. Th no, it's not, actually. <laughs> one more theme real quick. Um, this is one more thing that illustrates God's presence. So the New Jerusalem is um, also described as the bride of God. 
The New Jerusalem is, is a city, which is a city populated by the people of God. So to talk about the New Jerusalem is to talk about the bridegroom theme in the Bible. And if you remember back in the Old Testament, Israel, God's people, His church, if you will, back in the Old Testament, was often referred to as His bride. Your maker is your husband, one uh, prophetic writing says. But in the New Testament, the church is often described as the bride of Christ. Most famously, maybe Ephesians 5, where we're told that human marriage, Daniel and Randy, you know, Greg and Sherry, Rick and Andrea, they're modeling in their marriage the relationship between Christ and His church. Right? This eternal plan God had. Which Ephesians is basically about the church, but he uses marriage and says you can just toggle back and forth between the two. One mirrors the images forth the other. So the church is, is the Lord's bride in the same way. The people of God have always been his bride. We're going to be married collectively to God forever. And that's how uh, that's, that, that the, the bride renames the New Jerusalem. The bride is that new Jerusalem. It is the community of God's people. So in Revelation 2, I mean 20, uh, 21 verse uh, 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. But notice this. It's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then later he says, come see the bride. Come see the new Jerusalem, the bride. And he describes the new Jerusalem for several verses in the second half of Revelation 21. We don't really have time to delve into that too much today. So think about this. We're going to be married to God. I know that sounds weird, different. Maybe if you're a female, you're like, oh, that sounds great. I'm going to be married to Jesus, finally. I want my husband to be the whole time. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> if you're a guy, that's probably a little bit odd. But think about it. Whatever intimacy and romantic love and connection, the, wh however, for whatever reasons they're beautiful and fulfill us and we have longings for those, there is some sense in which the ultimate version of that is between God and all of us. I don't know what that looks like. Who knows? It'd probably blow our mind if God told us. But it is some kind of a marriage. So all of those longings will be probably fulfilled in ways we never imagined. All right? In our relationship with God. Because we're His bride. Is there any relationship between two persons that is closer potentially more intimate than the marriage relationship. And this brings up our final point about the new world of this realized kingdom. Revelation also presents to us a portrait of the redeemed people who populate this new world. The citizens of this kingdom, if you will. The people of God. What can we say? What does Revelation 21 and 2 tell us about who these people are? Well, first of all, they are Israel, in some sense. And you might expect this given all the biblical promises of an end times restoration of Israel. I can't begin to number all the prophetic statements about Israel will be restored, Jerusalem will be restored. And if you remember in Luke uh, 1 and 2 where you get all these announcements of the birth of Christ, several of those people uh, just instantly go to, oh, the Christ is coming? Then, then uh, you know, there's going to be the consolation of Israel or Jerusalem. And, we're going to get the restoration of our people. And finally, God's promise to Abraham is going to be, you know, the mighty are going to be overturned. Mary says that. Uh, Zechariah says that. Anna says that. Simeon says that. We just read through that. I didn't filter in. filters out. Doesn't go. I don't have that in my head. It's Israel, 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 Israel. Why? Because all their prophets said that. I don't know exactly what that means. Let's at least use the Bible terms. Don't throw it out because we haven't figured it out yet. 
when we read about this in Revelation 21, this new Jerusalem is Jerusalem. He didn't say new, the new San Francisco or the new Washington, D.C. or the new Rome. It's Jerusalem for a reason. This comes from Isaiah chapter 65. Um, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and in that, is, or coming into that, descending from heaven into that new heaven's new earth, is the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God as his bride. All of that comes from Isaiah 65, which I've got quoted here in the light blue square, verses 17 and 18. And I want you to notice that the promise of a new heaven's new earth is embedded. It's inextricably linked with. It's all bound up together with the new Jerusalem. And if you keep reading around this earlier and later in Isaiah, you get all these promises of the restoration of the nation of Israel. Okay? Over and over and over. I be, behold, I create new heavens and new earth. This is what John is seeing fulfilled. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create new, I create Jerusalem. I create it to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And so my point is that this is all embedded in a part of Isaiah that talks repeatedly about the future restoration of Israel. Interesting to me that when uh, John says, or, or when uh, Jesus or an angel, whoever it is, I can't remember, says to John, come, I will show you the new Jerusalem. And he begins to sort of describe it, and it's shaped like a cube, which incidentally was the same dimensions of the temple, interestingly. Um, notice this, though. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and, and, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Israel isn't just thrown away like it never mattered. It's consummated. Those threads are, are wrapped together in a fabric that's final and complete and beautiful. And it's like, here it is. This is where it's all been headed. But God's new creation kingdom also includes people from all nations. And that's important to notice as well. So it goes from Israel to all the nations of the earth. Revelation 21, verse 23 through 26. He's describing the new Jerusalem, the city. He says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. By its light the nations will walk. Man, what a beautiful... That gives me chills. God's glory is like a giant sun. There's never any night anymore. It's all day, all the time. Light everywhere. And by that light, at last, all nations are... are like aligning their, their behavior. They're walking by the light of, of the God of Israel, who it turns out is the God of the world. <laughs> by its light the nations will walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They, the kings of, of these nations, will bring into the new Jerusalem the glory and honor of the nations. And if you go back to the latter part of Isaiah, he goes through, in one of those chapters, I forget, 60-something, all these different nations and what they were known for. Lebanon and its cedars, and Tarshish, I don't know what Spain was known for then. Paella, you know. I don't, I don't know what, I can't remember what, what he says, but like, they're all the things they were known for in the ancient world, and they're bringing those things. They're not gone. They're not erased you still got national, ethnic, racial diversity. And they're bringing all their stuff, but now they're bringing it to lay at the feet 
of God and the Lamb who rule on the throne of this city and this new world forever. And there's no one in existence in that world who isn't devoted to this God. So it's Israel and it's the nations. And we read in, um, in, uh, later in uh, verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 2, that the leaves of the, the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. And you remember from the Old Testament, Israel was always supposed to be, as Isaiah puts it, a light to the nations. Right? They weren't called just because... Deuteronomy warns them, don't think I called you because you're special and you're really righteous or really powerful or really famous. They were none of those things. He said, I called you because I loved you. And as, as the, the Old Testament revelation you know, un, unfolds, as it develops, we learn that God called Israel from the world, but He called Israel for the world. He was going to work through Israel, as the promise to Abraham says, to bless all the nations, all the families, all the tribes of the world. Does that mean every Israelite, every Jew got that? No. There were chauvinistic ones like Jonah who were told, hey, there's some pagans over here in this rising empire in Assyria in the city of Nineveh that really need the truth. They're headed down the path to destruction. I want you, Jonah, to go talk to them. And Jonah doesn't want to. His identity is very much opposed to letting those people be blessed by God in some way or forgiven for their sins or whatever. And there have been lots of people through the ages, ostensibly faithful people of God, who can be incredibly chauvinistic, will rival the most chauvinistic atheists in the world. You can mount a decent argument that the most chauvinist people have been people of faith. I'm, not, I'm just historically speaking. There's been plenty of atheists. You know, 20th century saw a lot of atheist uh, states as well. You know, but think about this. I mean, if Jesus' own disciples early on, as they're going through Samaria, the bitter rivals, ethnic rivals of the Jews, they're going through Samaria, and remember what, what a couple of his disciples say? They say, Lord, would you now bring down fire from heaven to nuke the Samaritans? Like, that's what righteousness is. Nuking the bad guys. Jesus says, no, he reprimands them. He brings the gospel to Samaria instead. Was Samaria right on everything? No, no, no. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the answer to wrong and sin and sickness isn't aggression. It's like a medic or a nurse going to heal them. It has mercy and compassion. It's not a, that's not condoning it. You cannot condone something without becoming, you know, sticking your chest out and picking up a sword. And we need to be careful here. Um, because I just want to issue a caution here. Another sidebar. This is in my notes. Beware. Based on what the whole Bible says about where we're headed as Christians is a place where there will be every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Beware of appeals, political appeals, theological appeals, that ask you to interpret purity and righteousness and goodness based on ethnic or racial or nationalist terms. Huh? You want to talk about that after? I am happy to talk about that. I will defend that. To th that is so unbiblical. This nationalist Christian idea, it sounds a lot like Germany in the late 20s and early 30s, truth be told. When their theology of Christianity, which is a long heritage, I mean, they produced Martin Luther, for goodness sake. The Protestant Reformation, in many ways, 
He gave the Bible to people where they, they couldn't read it in Latin, but they could read it in their own vernacular. He, he led the way in much of that. So they did, some things had to change for Nazi Germany to rise. And one of the things that changes was a reinterpretation of what purity meant, of what righteousness meant, and to otherize all these other kinds of people. Beware of that. That is not Christian. It is not biblical. I'm going to be talking about that more in July or October or sometime. Matt will. I don't have the guts to do it. But, but <laughs> that makes people angry. Because we're, we're honestly messing with people's idols, probably. Jesus calls every nation. The Bible never intended for him to, not, uh, to do otherwise. What are the lives of these people like? What can we say about the people of God beyond them being composed of Israel plus all nations and weaving those themes of the Bible together? What else can we say? These people who are the citizens of God's eternal, eternal kingdom, what will their existence be like? In some of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible, we read, for instance, in Revelation 21-27, that there will be nothing unclean ever entering the new Jerusalem or the new heavens, new earth, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, all of us are described by the first half of this, right? We've all done detestable things. But it's the people who give those sins and give their lives to Jesus at the cross and are cleansed by His blood and are transformed to live in a different way where sin becomes something that's repellent and not attractive increasingly as they grow. Their names are written in the book of life, which the Lamb keeps, which Jesus keeps. And they're the only ones who will gain admission by virtue of what Jesus did at Calvary into the new heavens, new earth. So we don't have to worry anymore about the sins of other people, about the evil that evildoers do. We don't have to worry about the evil we do because we won't be doing it. Man, what a relief that is. Amen? And by virtue of that, or because, and that, that is by virtue of this truth. As the NIV puts it in Revelation 22, verse 3, again, another allusion to the Garden of Eden. No longer will there be any curse. This is the one way the new heavens and new earth isn't like Eden. It's like Eden without Genesis 3. <laughs> right? But going on and growing beyond that, no doubt. Because it's going into eternity. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. And that means that there will no longer be any suffering, mental or physical suffering. Think of all the suffering you've gone through. All the kinds of suffering that some of you are dealing with right now or your loved ones are dealing with that there just aren't solutions for. He will wipe away every tear, Revelation 21, 4, from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Imagine that. Imagine that. And all of our loved ones and friends, people from this very congregation, who have died in the Lord, are headed there. Already enjoying something with the Lord. I don't know exactly what. I don't think anybody does, honestly. We can speculate, and it's fun to speculate on that. The Bible gives us some clues. This is much more clear. The very end. As N.T. Wright, Wright puts it, life after life after death. That so many Christians, have, modern Christians, have become accustomed to not understanding uh, or to punning on. Anyway, this lesson concludes our... Well, I, I got one passage here that I think is really cool. 
the kingdom of the world will have become the kingdom of our Lord. That's where we're headed. Heaven invades earth until earth is all heaven and heaven is all earth in a sense because Christ is reigning forever and ever. Now, that concludes our, our mini-series. I, I want to uh, let you read one quote that sort of wraps up why it's so important to see the Bible story, the whole Bible story from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to new creation as a kingdom story. And this comes from Patrick Shiner, The Kingdom of God and the Glory of Christ. He, he writes this, From the beginning to the end, the Scriptures present the story of the kingdom. If you grasp the nature of the kingdom, then the Scriptures can be seen as a coherent narrative rather than a disparate collection of stories or rules. I think a lot of us grew up with that. The Bible is just this big book with a bunch of independent stuff that's really not related. No, it's a coherent story. The kingdom gives it that coherence. And the promises of the kingdom are earthy. Notice this, they're earthy. They are depicted to Abraham as land, children, and blessing. In Deuteronomy, they are defined as barns being full. In Hosea, the blessings are marked as the grain flourishing and the vine blossoming. In Amos, the Lord promises that He will, quote, rebuild the ruined cities. When Jesus arrives, He does not spiritualize these promises. He eats with sinners, provides food, heals people's bodies, washes disciples' feet, and gives, his, gives them His body and blood. Paul, in a similar way, instructs the kingdom citizens how to relate to one another in the tangibility of life. They are to wait to eat together. 1 Corinthians 11, Lord's Supper. They're to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 5. They're to share with the poor all over the place. In Revelation, the final picture is one of a city with high walls, gates, rivers, and trees. That's what the Bible's saying. We can selectively spiritualize some of it and not others and all, if we want to. But let's, let's be honest about what we're doing. Let's take the language seriously. Or quit claiming to be Bible people. Right? And then lastly, all these are pictures of the kingdom. Only when we connect the dots from the first page of the Bible to the last do we begin to see that on every page the kingdom concerns the, the king, his people, and their place. And at the center of this kingdom plan stands a wooden cross covered in blood. Amen. Now what? Cool story. Should be on Netflix. No, now we need to talk about how we place ourselves within that story. What it looks like when we as citizens in Christ's kingdom actually live like Christ is our king. That affects our morals. What we do with our bodies. How we react and interact with other people. How we regard material things. Ethics, all of that. Do we live like Jesus is our king? And so next week... Matt and I will begin a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is in many ways a sketch of the character traits and behavior of the citizens of Christ's kingdom. Thanks for your attention to this series. Hope it's been helpful in some way.